The Guardian. I'm Raphael Baer, and this is The Guardian Focus podcast. I'm here in Green Street Market in Newham, East London, home to the capital's largest Pakistani community. Britain and Pakistan have a complicated history, and relations were made more complicated still when David Cameron delivered what he thought were some home truths about Pakistan and terrorism on a recent visit to, of all places, India. It's unacceptable for for anything to happen within Pakistan. It's about supporting terrorism elsewhere, and it's well documented that that has been the case uh, in the past. And it's an issue that we have to make sure that the Pakistan uh, authorities are not looking two ways. They must only look one way. Pakistani President Asif Ali Zardari is holding talks with David Cameron this week. But should he have come at all? His country has been hit by the worst flooding since 1929. At least 1,500 were killed. What do the shoppers and stallholders of Green Street Market make of the controversy around the president's visit? Let's ask a few. I think he should be in Pakistan, you know. Why? Because, you know, look at the conditions of Pakistan, yeah. It's too much flood and people crying, you know. They need somebody there, you know. He's, he's like a head of the family there, you know. So it's like something happened in your house and the head of the family is going away for holidays or to meet someone, yeah. You should cancel everything, yeah, all these visitors, yeah. And to be there with the, with these people, yeah, and see them, what are they suffering. You see, people over here, when we saw on the TV, yeah, what's going on, yeah, my, my little kids, they start crying, yeah. They see how they're going to get these people, how they're going to get food, yeah, how they're going to get sleep. People are, you know, drowned, yeah, in the water. And so many children, yeah, they're dying. He ain't doing nothing for no one. They're only filling up their own bank balances. That's what they are. That's what people say, that there's the... It's true, come on, like, there's people, like, you know... There's no food, there's no water, and there's so much going on at the end of the day, yeah? And my man's there, like, just, you know... It must be hard watching on TV, seeing that, and yeah, then knowing... Well, that I stopped watching it, and it's And he's... And he's... And he, do you think he should have not come over? I, I don't think he's not... He shouldn't be a president anyway. I mean, he's not, he's not doing anyone a favour anyway. They all, everybody who's there, they're only looking after their own interests. They don't care about poverty or people getting flashed away and... Yeah, you heard that David Cameron said some things that maybe made a few people cross in uh, Pakistan. Yeah, something wrong there. You know, there's a lot of people against the Cameron because he says something about the terrorism. Do you, so, think, do you think he maybe he was right to say that, or do you think he was maybe a little no, bit? No, not in this mind. situation. You know, it's not right. I think. Why not? What What, what about the situation was? Because you know that's a, you know the situation of India and Pakistan, so they are against so. So it's not good India, for the nation. So. No, it's not good for the nation. Do you think? Yeah, it's really uh, disheartened for the nation. Do you think Zardari will maybe have some strong words because, for the Cameron? Pakistan is Pakistan is more suffering, and uh, as compared to other countries. And if you say about like that, so it's not good. I think. And do you, do you worry about the situation in, in Pakistan? Uh, of course, do everyone. You have a lot of family back in Pakistan. Not even the Pakistan. In the whole world is worried about these things about the terrorism. Yeah. We're all worried about that. Nobody likes this government in Pakistan, you know. The president of Pakistan, nobody likes him, yeah. Personally... Less than Musharraf? Well, Musharraf, is that, he was a different thing, you know. He has different parts. But this, this man is, it has a very clear past and you can see his future as well, you know. Are you worried Everybody, about the country generally? I mean, do you think it's is, is it in danger? It's no, it's no in good hands. It's no in good hands. Believe me, when when his wife, the the president of the People's Party, 
Bain Razir Budwani died. I had a very good brief here and uh, I, really, I was really thinking about what's going to happen here because she was so good and he's opposite of her. And did you hear that David Cameron got a little bit into trouble in, you know, when he said some things about uh, the Pakistani state when he was on his visit to India? Did you hear about that? Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's no good, to, it's no nice to say these things, you know, when you go to somewhere. He shouldn't say something about the other country. I, I believe he shouldn't say these things. Do you think it's maybe true what he said? I don't know. You can't say. Well, it's no, it's no really true. If well, if you know something is uh, happening, or you 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 have no proof and you can't see, you should shouldn't say these things. Well, let's leave the market and go straight over to Pakistan, where I'm joined on the line by Rizwan Beg, who is Emergency Programme Manager for Muslim Aid. I'm wondering if you could just start by telling me uh, where you are um, and dis- just describe a little for us the, the situation that you found there and what are the, the most urgent needs on the ground right now? I am just returning from uh, the, my, the site we are working in, uh, Noshera and Charsadda. Uh, it's the uh, two districts of uh, the northern province. It's called Khyber Pakhtunkhwa. Yeah, and what what are you finding are the most urgent needs for yeah. for people on the ground there? Well, the urgent need is drinking water, and the food, and the medicine. There is three major problem in the among the people who are staying uh, in the flood areas. Uh, that is scabies. Uh, cold outbreak and the diarrhea. And are you having difficulty getting access to people who have been displaced by the floodwaters? Yeah, it's it's difficult because uh, areas who are under the water. First thing, they we have two type of area. The one area is ruler. In the ruler areas, the villages wiped out due to this flood wave, due to this flash flood, and. Uh, the, in the towns, concrete build houses, uh, and but the problem is these, these are under the water. Although the water is uh, declined, but it's the mud and uh, water is stag- uh, stagnant in the areas. It's a very large area, water is stagnant, and also the dead animals. And to what extent, I mean, this is obviously a terrible natural disaster, but there have been some suggestions also that the it needn't have been so bad. That what, what extent do you think that broader economical and political conditions have made this perhaps worse than it needed to be? Well, it's, uh, government is working in, which, in their capacity. And you see, the thing is, uh, uh, the devastation is very large. The affected area is so big. So humanitarian organization, government and the army, they all are working together to cope up with this situation. So you, you don't recognize then necessarily some of the criticisms that have been around that the government has, has failed in its responsibility to the citizens who have been affected by this? Well, government is doing its work. Government is responding uh, to the affected areas. Uh, also, army is working for the affected areas. And uh, even one person could not do, I, I don't think one person could do anything. And his government machineries, government infrastructure is working uh, to, and responding uh, in, this, in this regard to helping the people. 
there's been some some criticism, certainly from we've heard over here that perhaps uh, President Zardari shouldn't necessarily have, have travelled abroad, that it was perhaps inappropriate when there was such a big crisis at home. Well, it's, it's the people are uh, uh, in Pakistan, people are thinking and media is also highlighting this issue. But on the ground, uh, government, army and humanitarian organization working and responding to the emergency, this uh, disaster and this devastation. Uh, Rizwan Baig there of Muslim Aid. Now we're joined on the line from Islamabad by Guardian correspondent Saeed Shah. We just heard a minute ago from uh, an aid worker who was fairly positive in his appraisal of the government relief effort saying that the state and the army had actually mobilised quite well. Is that your assessment of what's been happening? Well, I, I would say that it has improved. Uh, in fact, I, I spoke to people today uh, who, who told me that it, it had got much better uh, in the last few days. And this is uh, because the floodwaters are moving southwards and the places where they are now hitting have had several days to prepare. Um, and so they are in a much better position to cope. Um, uh, you know, and it, it is actually a different province uh, that, that they hit today, and it's a different provincial government which seems to be much better organised. So I think it is probably fair. Yeah, you, you wrote in The Guardian uh, earlier in the week that in the absence of, of state aid in the, in the worst-hit areas, religious extremists had, had started to move in. Did, did, you, did you sense and do you still sense that there, there was a, a power vacuum that had developed around the relief effort? Well, you know, at, at the moment, people are desperate. You know, they'll take, they, they'll take help from anyone who's uh, willing to give it to them. But I, I think that the, the provincial government in Punjab, which is where the floodwaters have now reached, um, does seem a little more on top of it than the provincial government in the northwest. Uh, which had left this big gap where charities, uh, religious groups of various kinds could move in. Um, but that gap still exists because uh, people, uh, although they may have been rescued, so their lives may not be in danger, are now living in terribly squalid conditions in, in these camps. So uh, if there's anyone who can offer them uh, aid of any kind, uh, I think that gap does exist. And, and how is this now colouring President Zardari's visit to the UK? Is it being widely covered? Is there still a sense that perhaps it was ill-judged on his part to come at all? Oh, I think his visit to the UK really is being seen uh, as a disaster, not only in Pakistan, but uh, in the British press as well, um, which, is, uh, you know, which has been highly critical of, you know, of his stay in the Five Star Hotel and... Uh, Prior to that, you know, of course, in the Pakistani papers, we saw pictures of the chateau in France that belongs to President Zadari, where he took a helicopter ship uh, while uh, in France. So uh, he's been roundly criticized not only for leaving the nation uh, at this moment of crisis, um, but during his trip to Britain, he'll be taking in a party political event, uh, which is a rally, in which he'll be promoting the political career of his son, Bilal. Um, which has left a further bad taste in, in the mouth in, in Pakistan. I mean, obviously, him being in Pakistan wouldn't actually have probably made very much difference. But it is the the imagery, um, you know, which uh, which you know, which is really uh, really damaged him. Does that profoundly affect his authority on all the security issues that are 
are so vital in the discussions that he'll be having with David Cameron or is it accepted that he's the partner that Cameron has to deal with and ultimately he's the president so his his power of enforcement in that area is still strong well i mean he's not a popular person in pakistan um and so this is you know further damaged his, uh, his his reputation um but you know as far as the british government is concerned they have to deal both with president sadari and his government, which is led by uh, Prime Minister Yusuf Raza Ghilani. Um, but, uh, you know, there is this tension between the UK and Pakistan at the moment over David Cameron's comments uh, he made in India, where he accused Pakistan of exporting terror. So that'll make for a, a pretty frosty um, meeting in any case, uh, even without this other issue hanging over the diary of, of, you know, why he left Pakistan during the floods. In fact, some British Asian MPs, uh, neither members of Parliament of Pakistani origin, have even refused to uh, to meet President Zadari because of this. Saeed Shah there, the Guardian correspondent in Islamabad. And you can read more of Saeed's reports from the region at guardian.co.uk slash Pakistan. So, while the rescue mission goes on at home, President Zadari will meet David Cameron in Chequers, where, no doubt, after some plain speaking, the two leaders will attempt to present a united front. But how stable or how brittle is the Pakistani state? Joining me here in the studio to discuss the visit are Karachi-born novelist Carmela Shamsi, Guardian news reporter Haroon Sadiq, and on the line from Delhi, the Guardian's South Asia correspondent and acclaimed author on international terrorism issues, Jason Burke. Jason, you've been covering this area for many years, and we've been in this situation before, haven't we, where it's felt as if Pakistan was on the brink of a terrible crisis, but it never seems to go quite over the brink. What is it that keeps the Pakistani state going? Uh, it's a question I've often asked myself, actually. Um, Pakistan is one of those places where you have two sort of paradigms of analysis uh, in, in the West, particularly. One is, uh, when is this failed state going to fail? And the other one is, who is going to win the battle between the extremists and the moderates? My worry with the former, as you point out, Raf, is that Pakistan has always been predicted... Uh, to be about to suffer a massive meltdown. And that goes right back to 47, uh, certainly uh, 71, and its partition into East and, uh, East and West Pakistan, or Bangladesh and Pakistan, right through the 70s, through the 80s, and the Soviet war in Afghanistan, and so on and so on. And it never quite seems to happen. And I honestly am uh, not sure uh, where Pakistan gets its resilience from. But as states go, it has shown itself to be uh, fundamentally extremely resilient. It's resisted or uh, taken blows that would destroy uh, many weaker states. I mean, in the last few years, you've had a series of massive national uh, natural disasters, you've had changes of government, you've had effective coups, you've had the death, uh, the murder of uh, the most uh, well-known, if not necessarily the most popular politician, and, and uh, an economy that's crashed after booming, and, and Pakistan still keeps going. Now, Jason, does, does the situation that David Cameron mentioned, though, in relation to uh, the border with Afghanistan, and this is a, a very hot war that is sort of drawn in in NATO, does that change the dynamic? Is there something else now going on that means somehow this is different, that we're in a much more brittle situation? I think um, it, it does make the immediate threat 
quite serious. Um, I mean, it is the most serious insurgency that's been seen within Pakistan for many years. Um, levels of violence that haven't been seen or a type of violence that hasn't been seen before. Um, I, I'm really interested, and this is an area that very few people have really gone into in any great depth, academics, analysts, or reporters, um, is, is the, the, the cultural links, if you like, between the army, uh, who are increasingly of a kind of moderate Islamist bent, and the and society at large, which is also increasingly of a sort of moderate conservative Islamist nationalist uh, flavour as well, if you like, um, and that, that I think is really interesting. I think that's where Pakistan is going, uh, and that, in a sense, the strengths of Pakistan are not ones that we really appreciate in the West, and that may be one of the reasons we still think we keep thinking it's going to explode or implode. Um, th- th- there's this sort of emerging middle ground in Pakistan, a sort of emerging identity. It's basically mildly Islamist, conservative, nationalist, which isn't very attractive, certainly not to the West, but maybe the the sort of strongest bonds that will keep it together and and force the extremists or marginalise eventually the extremists. Carmel, I'd be interested to know on that point about the loyalty and the strength that the state commands as opposed to individuals and the president himself. The state doesn't command loyalty as such in as much as within Pakistan people think in terms of ethnic loyalties and tribal loyalties and familial loyalties far above um, statewide loyalty. But the army, as Jason pointed out, the army is the strongest institution in the state and it is extremely strong. And to that question of why hasn't it collapsed, well, you know, the army is not prepared for it to collapse. Um, And there's as yet nothing powerful enough to take that on. Um, And so when people do talk about the state, they very much mean the security establishment rather than any civilian government. And I hope that changes in time, but for the moment it is very much the case. And Haroon, in in your experience then, if we're talking about this distinction between Pakistan, the country, Pakistan, the society, but also Pakistan, the state, and what we sometimes think of as the deep state, the, the sort of security establishment, how are those issues reflected in the Pakistani community in this country when people are, feel patriotic or loyal to Pakistan? What, which Pakistan are they, are they talking about? Probably the cricket team, I think. Uh, but seriously, I think, uh, I think politically that there's, there must be some loyalty there because, I mean, we hear that the Zadari is going to be in Birmingham on Saturday and they're expecting 3,000 supporters to turn up at the, I think it's the International Conference Centre where Bilal Bhutto is going to apparently launch his career into politics. Follow- this is the, the son of the president. Exactly, exactly. So um, I think that there is, that, that there obviously are people who are interested in politics, but I think, I think the loyalty generally is not to political parties. It's not to the government, it's more to the country, if that makes sense. Is there an anxiety, you think, in the Pakistani community in this country that, as we were discussing with Jason, that things are somehow different this time, that it's becoming much more brittle and that the war in Afghanistan is introducing a threat that's just a little bit more existential than some of the things that have gone before? I think so. I mean, I think a lot of people over here will get their opinions formed by uh, their their relatives and friends who are still uh, back in Pakistan. And, and if, if you, you know, from speaking to people when I've been over there, speaking to relatives, they, 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 they are, they are worried, but uh, 
their their worries are perhaps not what we would perceive them to be over over here. They 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 do acknowledge that they have a problem with insurgents, but they very much lay the blame for that uh, at the likes of the US and the and the UK. That's very interesting. I mean, Carmela, what's your your sense of that? I mean, I was struck just remembering the comment that came out of um, former President Musharraf's autobiography that he was threatened by the Deputy Secretary of State by the US that Pakistan would be bombed into the Stone Age if it didn't help in what was then officially known as the War on Terror. Now, that language has now been discreetly shelved and it's not called that anymore. But certainly in Britain, there was a strong feeling of resentment that the nation's foreign policy had been bowed and bent to serve US interests. So I imagine that feeling's all the stronger in Pakistan. In Pakistan, there's, of course, very good reason to be extremely suspicious of America. Having said and acknowledged that, um, the fact is that anti-Americanism now has reached a pathological level so that almost anything that happens in the country, people find a way to say it was America's fault. And, And the problem with that is that it takes culpability out of the hands of Pakistan itself. So people, rather than saying, what can we do here to change things, say, well, it's their fault out there. And it is a terrible problem, I think, that's arisen with a lot of the analysis of what's going on in Pakistan. And how does that feed into the the nuclear debate and the issue around nuclear weapons? Is, is it, do you think it's a source of, of just national pride or a sense that it's absolutely essential that this is a, a nuclear-armed country? Or is there a, a, a at all a, a disarmament movement or a feeling that somehow these are terrible weapons of Armageddon that you know, we really shouldn't necessarily be, be playing with? No, it's, I mean, there might be, you know, 10 people in the country who will say these are <laughs> weapons of Armageddon. But for most people, it's a very simple equation. India has them, we must have them. There's nothing more to be said. Now, one of the doomsday scenarios that certainly Western security analysts describe is this one where somehow the, uh, the there's a sort of Talibanization of parts of the Pakistan state and through the connections with the security services, you end up in a situation where there's a at least a Taliban-style government or an ideological movement that has access to nuclear weapons. Um, Jason, if you're back with us, is that a sort of deluded fantasy or is that something that's actually a a credible threat on the horizon? It it is really. I mean, mean, there are two reasons. I mean, the main thing is that the the, the Taliban are simply nowhere near getting that kind of control in, in, in Pakistan. I mean, they're way, way off in just in tactical terms, anywhere near approaching the kind of taking over the government or anything. And that, that, it's pretty difficult to see how they do that with half a million Pakistani soldiers uh, opposed to that largely. And the other thing is that the actual nuclear weapons are not weaponized. They're broken up. The Americans have spent an enormous amount of money very quietly uh, securing those weapons uh, with a whole series of codes and various other things. So uh, you put it all together and it's extremely difficult to imagine a scenario, certainly without some major, major shifts strategically in the in the region and in Pakistan that would allow that to happen. And, and they're kind of other things that I think we should be worrying about. Taking a few steps away from that more extreme scenario, I mean, Hillary Clinton has said that someone in the Pakistan government knows where Osama bin Laden is hiding and David Cameron made those those comments in India that that so inflamed um, opinion in, in Pakistan. Now, it's quite interesting, a fundamental question here, which is that a lot of people who commented, even commented quite negatively on David Cameron's comments, prefaced their re- reaction by saying, well, what he'd said was true, that the inter-service intelligence do support terrorism and that 
if Britain is a friend of Pakistan, these things have to be said. So can we just start from a basic point? How true is that? How true is it what David Cameron said? Largely true. I mean, this has been known uh, in intelligence circles for a very long time. And, and I, mean, I was talking to a CIA guy, uh, now uh, retired, who was uh, very senior in South Asia in, the, uh, in 2002, 2003, 2004. And he said, look, it, it, we knew it was going on. Um, the, uh, and this fits in with other people's perception. Very early on, the um, Pakistanis made a decision that the West were going to pull out of Afghanistan eventually, and they needed to be positioned for that eventuality. And the best way to do that was to develop uh, elements of the insurgents or among the insurgents who would be friendly to them uh, and would allow them to finally arrive at the uh, foreign policy goal that they've been trying to get to for about 50 years, which is a pro-Islamabad government in Kabul. Uh, The best way to do that is to, at the very least, tacitly support the Taliban by allowing them to base themselves in uh, Pakistan along the border, Um, possibly, and this is where it gets a little bit more controversial in terms of the evidence, uh, actively support them uh, by sending them weapons or by um, tactical advice or whatever. Haroon, you you mentioned that there is a sense of of enormous sensitivity around these suggestions and when they get made and that there's a a tendency to want to to throw the blame back to Britain and the US and the West. How much, if we could call that a sort of conspiratorial view of the way Western interests operate in relation to Pakistan, how much of that do you think is also felt in the Pakistani community in this country, that when these allegations are made, the automatic response will be, well, they would say that, but really the truth lies buried somewhere else? I think there's some support for uh, blaming external interests just because, as I said, that their loyalty here isn't really to the government or or the state, but it's to a kind of romanticised notion in a, in a way of the, of the homeland. And it, it is a lot easier to blame external interests. And I, I, I've even spoken to sort of Pakistani politicians here who have, I, I think Cameron's, Cameron's comments as, uh, it's interesting you were saying lots of people preface them by saying they were true. But I think people are very angry even people who maybe aren't that engaged politically in the Pakistani community here, they do feel that he overstepped the mark. And I think people in Pakistan really do date their problems back to when the war on terror started. And and they date all their problems back to that, to there. And Cameron was, I think they view Cameron as very insensitive as they think maybe not Britain, but Britain alongside the States helped create this problem. They, they probably see no contradiction between living here and appreciating the, the the tolerant aspects of the society and enjoying their life here, but at the same time blaming Britain and America for what's going on in Pakistan. So it's quite an interesting kind of contradiction in, in those terms. And and Carmel, you, you mentioned that the thing that was probably most inflaming about David Cameron's comments were the fact that they were they were made in India. I'm always very struck by the fact that when when Britain, any representative of Britain makes a foreign policy pronouncement, they come at it from a certain perspective of of this country's role in the world, which isn't necessarily shared elsewhere. So looking at it from the from the Pakistani perspective, the president's visit to this country, is this a, a major significant event or is it just something that he really oughtn't to have been doing when we've had these terrible floods and awful things going on back in Pakistan that really need a president's attention? Yes, I mean, the main discussion around 
President Zaldari's visit is why is he here um, rather than in Pakistan where three million people at present have been displaced by the floods? I'm afraid that's all we've got time for. Uh, thank you for listening and thank you to my guests, Kamala Shamsi, Haroon Sadiq and Jason Burke. Uh, the producer was Phil Maynard and I'm Raphael Baer. Goodbye. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.